Open your Bibles, please, if you have them, to the Gospel of Mark. We're continuing our study through Mark's account of the life and works of Jesus Christ. We do so not just to learn about Jesus, but as we want to remind ourselves, we're doing so that our lives might be redefined by His life. Uh, We have come in our study to what many would consider the hardest of the hard sayings of Jesus. It's tripped up. A lot of people for many, many years continues to trip us up today. G. Campbell Morgan wrote a part of the text we'll read today, quote, no more solemn and awful words ever fell from the lips of Jesus, end quote. Yikes. Uh, We come to our text, I think, appropriately with a measure of trepidation and fear and trembling. But I want you to know we're coming to this text in God's providence with a great deal of hope because I want to remind you as hard as these words are, and they are, whatever Jesus says to us is for our good. Hard, yes. For our good, yes. That we might have life, right? And have it abundantly. That means life right now in the midst of your struggles, challenges, and all the hardships of life. And not just life eternal. So we come with a great deal of hope. By way of context, let me remind you that Michael taught 9 through, uh, or 7 through 19 last week. And that was the choosing the apostles, the 12. And I want you to notice something. Look at verse 19 in chapter 3. Last one. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Do you feel the weight of that last sentence? Who betrayed him? So we're early in the gospel, but Mark is saying, here's a storm cloud. Oh, it's small right now, but it is going to grow all the way through our study. And we come now to verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20, and we're going to go all the way through 35. I know I had you do this just a moment ago, but may I ask you to stand one more time, please, in respect for the word and God's word to you and I today. Follow along in your Bibles as I read the text in its entirety. Now, it's three paragraphs, but it's one section. Verse 20, and he, that's Jesus, came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. 
Then his mother and his brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was standing around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking around at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Father, please add your blessing to this public reading and public study of your word. May your spirit teach us, convict us, challenge us, enable us to trust you and this word more. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Well, I pulled out the old dry erase board for us today, and I, I hope you, that you can see it from where you're sitting, um, at least catch a glimpse of it. And I know it's a kind of archaic way of doing things, but I sometimes like you to see something just plain old visually in front of you. And when we, I had us read this text, I had us read it in its entirety because we, we might not look at it and go, well, that all goes together. But in fact, Mark uses a literary technique called bracketing. And it is, we give it a different name, it's, it's the first, actually, of, of several Markan sandwiches that we will eat as we go through the study of Mark. Now, I want to describe this to you, why we would call it a Markan sandwich. And so, uh, you know, watch me as I do this here, and then you can look in your Bibles as well, but it is like a sandwich in this way, in that the story begins, right, in verses 20 and 21, and it says his people came. And uh, we, we don't know who his people are because it's two short verses that describe his people coming to get him. And then notice that Mark just kind of, it seems somewhat random maybe in a way, but he starts talking about the scribes. I mean, where did this come from? I thought you were talking about his people. And so the middle of the sandwich, so to speak, we would say it this way, are the scribes. And he tells the story about the scribes, pretty involved, and that's 22 to 30. And then do you notice that we picked up verses 30 to 35 because at the back end of this section, we get the bottom piece of bread. And on the bottom piece of bread, we actually now, in verses 31 to 35, we are told who his people are. And I want you to tell me, who are his people, according to verses 31 to 35? Mom and brother. So now we say, okay, started with his people, and now we go, oh, that is his family. Got it. And now you look up at this and you go, so what? You know, like, okay, Lloyd, you can draw a sandwich, you know. What does it mean? And of course, that's what matters most, doesn't it? Why Mark tells this story in this Markan sandwich. And we're going to find that out as we take the sandwich apart. And then we put it back together and we'll see what we're intended to see. Let's start with the top slice. I'm going to move through this pretty quickly. It's not difficult to grasp. Verses 20 to 21, Jesus and the disciples are back in Capernaum. And uh, they are back in that house that's way too full because his popularity is so big 
that people come from all over. And it's just like in chapter one, when they gathered in that house, or chapter two, and no one could get in the room. And so those guys took the tiles off the roof to lower their friend in. Everybody with me? So you're the same, same house probably. And, and they can't get in. This place is packed. And it's so full and the work is so demanding, you all, that it tells us Jesus didn't have time to eat. Now, Based on the story as a whole, we might have this sanctified conjecture and go, you know, uh, Mary has been concerned about Jesus, it seems clearly. Think about all that he's been doing. He's running up against some major opposition. And then she gets word, hey, you know, Jesus isn't even eating. And it could be that she said, that's enough. I know he's 30 years old. All the moms in the room, you know, you go, I know they're 30 years old, but he's not eating and I'm gonna take care of this. And literally they set out to get him, right? Now it says they came to take custody. Uh, take custody. That Greek word is used later in Mark of the arrests. It's the same Greek word. So to take custody is to take custody. It is to, to bring under your control. In other words, they're going not to say, you know, this Jesus is not a good thing you're doing. Would you think about coming home, spend a few days, let, it, let, let mama feed you? You know, it's a kind of that kind of thing. No, they're going to take custody of Jesus because he's lost his senses. Uh, we don't even need to define that, do we? It's, uh, the Greek is he's out of himself, and we get that. People go crazy. We go, that guy's lost his mind. He's out of his mind, and that is exactly what they think of Jesus at this time. Just an observation, you can mull on this later today. I actually am encouraged by it. Jesus had a dysfunctional family. He really did. He, he, um, his, his siblings didn't get him. Anybody got siblings that you don't get and they don't get you? Uh, he disappointed his mom, you know, I mean... His brothers, we know in John, they didn't believe in him. He had a dysfunctional family. Thank God we have a high priest who can identify with us in every, every way. Okay, how about the middle of the sandwich? Well, uh, we see here the scribes come down. An official delegation is sent from headquarters, Jerusalem. Go down there and check this out, which the scribes do. Now, Really, really important to understand their mindset. And we see their mindset actually in chapter 3, verse 6. Look there with me for a moment. It says, The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might, what? Destroy him. Men and women, don't miss this, the rest of the gospel. Early on, let's go see what he's about. Let's find out what he believes. Let's check. They're not doing that anymore. They are now ready to destroy him. So this is why the storm cloud will grow. Well, they come down and they, having made up their mind, I mean, you gotta take this, they've already made up their mind. So they can't look at Jesus and deny that he has exercised demons. That is, he has said a word and, and a demonic being, spiritual being that possessed a person came out. He commanded it and it came out. And by the way, he's batting a thousand, which no one ever did. And he only did it with a word. Every time he said it, they came out. They can't deny that. But having made up their mind, they're gonna destroy him. The only thing left for them is to, what they do, attribute what Jesus is doing to the devil. In other words, Beelzebul, god of, the Ekron, god of Ekron, god of the Moabites, it had come in time to mean to a Jew, 
the leader of demons, Satan. So, so when he says he's a Beelzebub, he's saying, hey, you can cast out demons because you have a demon in you and, you, and you're working for the head of the demons, Satan himself. Does that make sense? So that's their accusation. Now, Jesus begins to speak in parables. Parables, we'll find out, are designed to hide the truth and reveal the truth. And I'll tell you, on these in particular, the first three things he says, these are really easy. I don't think you can find parables in your Bible that are more easily understood than these first three especially, okay? That he says to them, and I want you to follow along, three things, kingdom divided, house divided, and Satan divided. So he says, if a kingdom's divided, if a kingdom fights against itself, it won't last. Um, if ISIS is sending suicide bombers to ISIS, ISIS will not be around for long. Everybody with me? You, you just go, that just makes total sense. If a home uh, is divided, if, if family members are destroying each other, the bottom line is that home, the legacy will not last. And we all go, that is so clear and makes sense. And if Satan himself is fighting Satan himself, then Satan is finished. And we go, gosh, that just makes total sense. And if you were to look around Capernaum in that day and see disease and devastation and oppression and bondage and demon possession and people harming people, you would go, it doesn't look like Satan is getting weaker. In other words, this doesn't, I don't know, if, if Satan's fighting against himself, it looks like he's really getting stronger here. Doesn't that make sense? And then he does another parable and says, let me tell you exactly what's happening. This is what you are seeing. And he's speaking to the leaders here, religious leaders. He says that uh, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, then he will plunder it. Let me give you the characters and who they are. The strong man is the devil. The strong man is the devil. His house is this world. Second Corinthians says Satan is the god of this world. See, so Satan is, is the god of this world temporarily, and so his house is this world, and his house, in fact, in this context, are the people he possesses. See, so he's going to express his purpose and his, his rejection of God by possessing someone, holding them in bondage, and destroying them. You see that? So that's his house. Now, Jesus says the only way you can plunder the strong man's house is to bind the strong man. So someone binds the strong man in this story. Who is it? Jesus. It's not a tricky question here. It's Jesus. So Jesus says, I've bound the strong man. We would put that probably at the temptation where he you know, overcame Satan in the temptation account right earlier. So I've bound the strong man. So Satan is bound. And what you're seeing, bottom line is, is me, because I'm stronger than Satan, coming in and plundering his house and removing the demon and the bondage that that demon brought to the person. Does everybody, make sense? everybody with me on that? that? That's what makes sense here. And by the way, especially on the first three, isn't it interesting that, that those first three, kingdom divided, house divided, Satan divided, it just, just makes so much sense. But when people have made up their mind, see, it's already predetermined, made up their mind, Jesus is not who he says he is. They come up with the most illogical arguments. And I just want to say that to you. I'm not going to throw anybody on the bus. I don't really have an example of it. But I just want you to know, when someone comes to you and they've got an argument against Christ, don't take it right at face. You've got to think about it because they, these are the smartest people in the culture. And, and Jesus takes their argument apart like this. 
and you go, I mean, you don't even have to be a Christian to go, your argument makes no sense. May we remember that even when people today would bring an argument against Christ. Now brace yourself, because here it comes, verse 28. Truly. Amen, is what he says. It's, it's the first time he uses it, and it's that sense of, this is true. You know, it's Old Testament, amen. It's, this is what's true, and he's reminding them, this is really true. All sins shall be forgiven of given the sons of men, whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. When I was 17 years old, uh, I was not a Christian. I did not grow up in a Christian home, but my brother had become a Christian. My brother, uh, Darden, I named my son after him. He was at Middle Tennessee State University and through the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ, he became a Christian. He believed the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for his sins, was buried and raised again, and he did it for him, and he put his trust in Christ. So, you know, you gotta remember this, my brother's 18 months older than me, so, you know, my relationship with my brother is this, I love you, I hate you, I love you, I hate you. Let's go do something fun. I'm gonna kill you, I can't stand you, let's hang out together. I once threw a knife at my brother, thank goodness it didn't hit him, you know, with brother relationship. So now, I'm 17, it's those weird years, you know, you just, it's just brother stuff, and I remember he was a Christian now and he was living like it. And I remember saying, well, at least, we were arguing about something. I said, well, at least I don't think I'm blankety blanking Jesus and walking around the blankety blank earth, blankety blanking, doing good like Jesus. Like, you know, I just let him have it. We were in our little blue Volkswagen, baby blue Volkswagen. We were on Peachers Mill Road in Clarksville, Tennessee, and we were just coming up over some railroad tracks. And I remember saying it. And I remember it vividly because some, a year later, I became a Christian, trusted Christ. And for years after that, if I wasn't doing well in my faith, or even when I was doing well in my faith, there was always this gnawing question in the back of my mind. Maybe I committed the unforgivable sin because I really chewed him out. Now, I have I've thought that. And I want to ask you a question, and I want to deal with this pretty decisively today for you because it really matters. If you've ever thought it, you know, don't, you know, I can't tell you don't be embarrassed. If you're embarrassed, you're embarrassed. But I'm just going to tell you, if you've ever thought it or you're thinking it now or at one time you did whatever, I have. Has anyone else? I literally want you to raise your hand. If you haven't, don't raise your hand. It's never been a concern for you. But has it ever been a concern for anybody in the room? Raise your hand up. Anybody? There's, there's quite a few of us it has. So I want you to understand this absolutely clearly. Blasphemy is to profane um, the name of God. It's to say something, you know, that's not true about God and to say it irreverently. And um, Has anyone ever blasphemed? Now, if you don't raise your hand, you're, you're lying now because we've all blasphemed. Are you kidding me? Has anyone ever rejected Jesus? All, we've all rejected Jesus, you see. Now, let's talk about this. What it's not, okay, this unpardonable sin, it's not cursing my brother and telling him he thinks he's... I gotta be careful there. Then come out. <laughs> it's not using the Lord's name in vain. It's not saying something you know, wrong about Jesus or the Holy Spirit that's not true. It's not murder, adultery, lying, stealing, cheating, homosexuality, sexual perversion. It's not any type of immorality. immorality. Paul himself, Paul himself in 1 Timothy was a blasphemer, wasn't he? I want you to think about Paul, people. 
Did Paul miss Jesus? Did Paul attribute to Jesus what was not true? I, I venture to say so, such that he became, in our terms today, a mass murderer. You know, we always forget that. Wait, Paul killed a lot of people, murdered a lot of people. How about Peter who denied Jesus, cursing, cursing, denying Jesus, having just spent three years with him, the unpardonable sins, not the worst sin you can imagine or think of or, or, or you've done. It's not even dying in your unbelief. So let's be careful here. I want you to know that if you have not placed your faith in Christ and you die, your sins are not forgiven. That's, a, that's the gospel, that we believe in Christ while we're alive. You can trust Christ. But when you die, and if you've not trusted Christ, your sins are unforgiven. But that's not what he's talking about here. The key to understanding what he's talking about here is the key in all of our scriptures is to keep it in its historical context. Be careful how we understand this. Jesus was physically present on earth and Jesus himself was offering to Israel the kingdom. And the religious leaders of Israel, those who were the brightest trained scholars who, who should have known that this is Messiah and he's offering the kingdom to Israel, they made up their mind and rejected it. Now, the tense here says they, they said that they, they said you're of Satan is it's continual. It's like they kept on saying, they kept on saying, they kept on saying, they kept on saying. In other words, these leaders had a fixed conviction. It's a fixed conviction that was not going to change that Jesus is of the devil or Jesus is not the son of God, you see. Jesus doesn't even say to them at this point, he says, you've committed the unpardonable sin. He didn't say that, did he? He said, you're close, you know, and if you do this, you, you will, and in fact, they do. I'll read this a couple times, the unpardonable sin. By the way, there are, I don't know, six different views on this, um, so, so please understand, I'm giving you what I, I'm holding to and understand, but I'll talk about some other views or another view in a moment that can, that's very parallel to it, but here's my understanding. The unpardonable sin was the rejection of Jesus the Messiah by the religious establishment of Israel, a sin they would not, could not recover from. The unpardonable sin was the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah by the religious establishment of Israel, a sin they would not, could not recover from. Now, implications if, I, if you hold this view, which I'm gonna hold, I hold this view, is that to commit this sin, you'd had to have been there with Jesus to commit this sin that he's speaking of here. If you think you've committed the sin, you haven't because you can't. If you think you're going to do it in the future, like, I mean, I may do it before I die. You can't because you can't because it's in this historical context. Um, there, are, there are other views of this sin and some very bright people and you could be there and this is totally fine where you might go, no, I believe it's this, and it, you could commit this sin in this life, and, and that's totally fine. What I want you to know, though, is if you hold to that view that you could commit this sin in this life, whereas I'm holding to a view that says you, you can't do it in this life, both of us would agree, okay? So we would all agree on this. If you're concerned that you've done it, or if you're like, I, I hope I don't, then you haven't, and you can't. 
Because this sin, we all, whether you, wherever you stand on what you believe about this passage, holds that this sin is such that you are so locked in, it would never cross your mind to be sorry. So just know this, if you're sorry or you're concerned, you're not committing it. Does that make sense? You, you can't. This sin would be that which you are so locked in, you'd never be sorry for it and you'd die in your sins, okay? If you can't take my word, at least I'll stand behind Charles Ryrie, one of the, probably one of the best theologians of, of our, our generation, my generation per se. This is Ryrie's view and I'm just gonna quote from him. He says, speaking against the Holy Spirit was not merely a sin of the tongue. The scribes had not sinned only with their words. It was a sin of the heart expressed in words. Furthermore, theirs was a sin committed to Jesus' face. To commit this particular sin required the personal and visible presence of Christ on earth. To commit it today, therefore, would be impossible. Okay? So, that's my understanding of that. Or you could say... Again, it's, to, it's to, uh, uh, to attribute to Jesus that it's the works of the devil. And even if you hold that view and say it could happen today, if you're sorry for it, clearly you would never, you're not committing it. You know, one last word on this. When we read the rest of the New Testament, you notice the evangelistic proclamation of Christ is always universal. To all who believe in Christ, to anyone who believes in the name of Jesus Christ and calls upon his name, you will be saved. You will not find Peter, any of the apostles, ever going. Now, anyone, unless you've committed the unpardonable sin or do, can believe in the name of Jesus and be saved. No, they're not going to do that. And quite frankly, you never see the topic come up again in the New Testament. And therefore, my contention is this. Um, they, it wasn't hard for them. <laughs> you know, in other words, it didn't get Paul's riled up to go, I need to explain what Jesus said by that because this is huge, right? No, he never addresses it per se. And that would take me to this. We're now at the bottom slice. And can I say this? My, my gut is this. The hard saying of Jesus is not verses 28 to 30. I think the hard sayings, verses 31 to 35. Then his mother and his brothers arrived and standing, notice the contrast, outside looking, uh, mother and, uh, they were standing outside. They sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him. Where are they? Inside. And they said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking around at those who were sitting around him inside. He said, behold, my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Wow. Now, this is the first biblical family intervention. And uh, I think it's the only one. And here's a word to all of us. If you ever feel like you need to go intervene, have a family intervention with Jesus, don't do it. I don't care if there's 20 of you because he's right, you're wrong. And uh, that's what happens here, outside, who's outside? Who is outside the, the, the building visually? His people, his family, they're outside. Who's inside? Who's around Jesus? And he'll say here, who's in relationship with me? Well, the, I know there's one lowly tax collector in there, scum of the earth. Uh, there's a couple fishermen, you know, there's four fishermen in there with him. And then there's, there's these, these guys are in there with him. They're around him. 
That's who's inside. The people like, in other words, people like the scribes are inside. But his real family, his blood family, they're on the outside. Do you suppose, think of another contrast, do you suppose that Mary, let's just use Mary, do you suppose Mary's intentions were honorable? I mean, in a sense, good. I'm not being facetious, and I know it's not in the text, but I, I think we can assume some things. You think she was, her intentions were good? Do you think that? I do. Uh, do you think the scribes' intentions were good? No. So, so we could say, you know, outside, inside. You know, good intentions, oh boy, evil intentions. And this is where we see the brilliance of Mark using the bracket or the sandwich. How many sandwiches are there? I'm not kidding. That's no joke. That's not a trick question. There's one. So Mark writes this story in such a way to show us that the point of both stories is the same. This is one story. This is not like, hey, think of the family and think of the scribes and they're different people. They're the same. Okay, Lloyd, explain that further. Well, when it comes to what matters most, and clearly the most important thing in this text, the most important thing our Bible would say, the most important thing is to be in relationship with Christ. And clearly in this story, blood is no greater advantage than religion. How about that? Wait a minute. Are you telling me Mary is as far away from Jesus as the scribes? Yes. That's what the story tells us. Does that make sense? They're, they're all, they're, everyone in the story is not in relationship with Christ. It helps us see this. And again, try and clarify this. Think about these categories. Both family and foe are seeking to derail Jesus' ministry and mission. Now, we know the scribes are. But see what the sandwich does? The sandwich goes, hey, even his family's trying to derail him. Oh, they, they don't think they are, but they're trying to pull him out from what? He is called to do. What happens when Peter does that? <laughs> you talk about harsh words. Get behind me, Satan. Does this make sense? See, they're in the same boat. And both were missing the most important thing, a relationship with Christ. Two lessons. Let me offer this, and hopefully this clarifies a bit more. I'm going to take this from Mary and uh, the, the, the sons. May we beware of the ways that we seek to derail the mission of Christ in our own life, even with good intentions. See, they had good intentions, but man, they were, they were no different than the scribes. They were going to derail his mission. May we beware of ways that we, we actually resist Jesus. We have good intentions, but we resist that which he is doing there are always things, I, could, I was going to say sometimes, no, there are always things in my life, it seems to me, that Christ is doing that I wish he wasn't doing. And there are times when I want to reach over there and have a talk with him and say, I don't think you should do this. I think you should have not put that relationship in my world. I think you needed to take care of this, and I think you needed to provide, and I don't like what you're doing right now related to this. 
Jesus is sovereign and Jesus is in control and I am his, then I need to beware the ways that I may resist what he's doing. Because to me, it looks like he's not eating and you need to eat. Does this make sense? And they intended good, but let me tell you something. They were resisting what Jesus himself was doing. By the way, think of the family and think of the story. And Mark chooses his words carefully. He says that Mary and the brothers called Jesus. In other words, they called him, you know, come out to us. Let me tell you something. We don't call Jesus. What's the story already shown us? Jesus calls his disciples. They put it all down and they follow him. Jesus calls, we follow. That's how our lives are redefined by him. Which, which takes us to a second lesson, and, and they're kind of interrelated, but let me offer this one. May we never forget that our heavenly family is more important than our earthly family. You talk about hard words, think about it. Okay. May we never forget that our heavenly family is more important I'm going to say it, important than our earthly family. Um, Jesus will repeat this throughout his gospel. You know, the most important point that Mark makes in this section, and Jesus says at the back end, is he looks around at the people and said, who are, who are related to me? Who are really related to me spiritually? I'll tell you who. Those who do the will of God. What is the will of God? That you believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's start there. Oh, there's more, of course. But you don't do the more until you've done the first, and that is to bow your knee to Jesus and say, I believe what you did, Jesus. You did for me, and I'm trusting you that all you did for me was enough. I can't do anything else to be pleasing to God. You did it all, paid it all, and I trust you and I believe you. This is the gospel. This is the will of God. And to be, leave the Son is to be vitally and spiritually connected to God the Father through the Son. And he's saying to us, and he's saying to them, I don't care if you birthed me. <laughs> I don't mean to be crass about that, but Mary... You, you need to bow and believe in me. I don't care if I'm your blood brother. You've got to bow and have faith in me. And keeping the law, scribes, won't put you in relationship with me. It's not to say we don't honor mom and dad. I want to be careful here. Don't misquote me, please. And it's easy for us to, you know, kind of get to, and Jesus is going to say a lot about, Jesus is going to say, hate your mom and dad and those kind of things. And there's context for that. But it's not to say you dishonor mom and dad. You know, Jesus honored his mom. He took care of his mom on the cross itself. Paul will write that if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's, he's not a good man. I mean, we have family obligations, etc. But we dare not miss the clear message that the spiritual family of God is more important than your earthly family, period. And there's really no close second. Now, for some of us, I think these are really words of encouragement because we come from whacked out families or, quite frankly, we actually don't have one. We're orphans. We don't have a family, never had a family. We miss the family. And when we come into the family of God, it's like, oh my gosh, thank you, God, I belong, you see. And that's so good and true. And that should be true for all of us, whatever you know, our family behind us was, our parents, etc. We belong to the family of God. It's, a, it's, it's rich to feel that. I think, I think many of us, myself included, we have a little bit more trouble not looking behind myself and saying, you know, I know 
being a part of the family of God is more important than my mom and dad, my brother and sister. It's when we stand here, and I know for myself, I've got three kids, Darden, Susan, and Sally. And it's to say to me, Lloyd, do you understand that your relationship with Christ, spiritual family, is more important than Darden, Susan, and Sally? I, I have a little pause right there. I go, oh, hmm. That's what he says. And he's going to say it again all through the Gospels, by the way. Do you understand that the family of God's more important than your own children? Why would Jesus, why, why would he say such a thing? Because honestly, I kind of ch- chokes me up and I go, I, I can't quite get there. Why would he say that? Why would, we know what he's saying is true. Well, he says it because Jesus is concerned about eternity, men and women. And let me say and be absolutely clear, there's only one family that lasts forever. And it's not your family right now on earth. And it's not mine. And that kind of brings a little sadness in my heart. But at the same time, I go, it's for, wait, it's forever. And of course, my family's important. And my commitment is to raise my children prayerfully that they would trust Christ. And seeing that, of course, I take great joy because I know I will be with them forever. But family, I, I don't want to burst your bubble, but family's not forever. You know, this would really burst your bubble. Marriage isn't forever but relationship with God, family of God, spiritual family is. You know, connected back to resisting Jesus, let me just say this one thing. I want to say to every parent, we need to be so finely in tune with Christ, our relationship with Christ, that we actually don't inadvertently resist the work Jesus is doing in our kids. Because, man, you talk about meddling and getting in there when Jesus is doing something in your kid's life that's painful or it's painful to you, don't we? We need to be careful to go there his and not resist him there. So what? What do we do with this text? Well, you know, let me offer this. Uh, when I uh, baptize someone, I baptize some of you, I will say to adult and children, but especially to children, because it's kind of a novel thought to them, but I'll look at the child and I'll say, you know, I'm your brother in Christ now. You know, I'm, we're, we're family now. Because that's what happens when you put your life, your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in the moment you believe, you understand that in that moment, you see, you're buried with him and then raised to newness of life. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here and what we say in baptism here and we understand the Bible says. That baptism is a representation symbolic of a decision these children and adults made previously, and they're saved. But they come as a step of obedience to say to their family, God saved me, I've placed my faith in him, and what happened when I believed was I was buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life, and I am now part of his forever family. And this is what matters most. That's what Jesus is saying to us in this text. Let's stand together. I want to pray for you. And I want to say, if you would bow your heads, please, I want to say, if there's anyone in this room and you've not joined God's family by putting your trust in Christ, 
you can. You don't have to be baptized for that. You simply have to believe. And you can express that belief by telling God in your mind or say it that you are turning from your own way to God, to Him. And that you, in this moment, you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sin. Your sin deserved death and Jesus died for you. He was buried and he rose again. And you are trusting that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was for you. When you believe that, you are born again, born in you, and you are placed in the family of God. This is the most important thing in life. Father, thank you for these hard words. Give us clarity on this unforgivable sin that Jesus speaks of. And give us great, great courage to live life in such a way that our spiritual family truly is more important than our earthly family. Not that we would ever neglect our earthly family or not honor it, but that the world would see life with you and relationship with you is more important than anything. Grant us courage to live this way, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. God bless.